The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're talking about Hugh Glass, and he's the mountain man of the Revenant. This is the movie where Leo DiCaprio was awarded an Oscar for portraying Hugh Glass. And he's one of a number of the mountain men that pursued furs across the Rocky Mountains. And my guest today is Eric J. Dolan. And he's the author of the book Fur, Fortune, and Empire. And Eric is really good at separating the fiction from the facts about the mountain men. Um, and yet he's very, it's, it's a totally engaging book about how the mountain men worked in the Northwest to enable the development of the West Coast. So, hello, Eric. Thanks for coming by. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Also with me on today's episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues is the Ocean River Institute student intern, Liz Devin. Hello. Hi, Rob. Hi, Liz. So, Eric, um, Tell us about the backstory. How did you learn about this movie and, and first encounters of Kevin? Uh, about a month before the movie came out, uh, somebody from 20th Century uh, Movie Studios contacted me and asked me if I'd like to see a private screening of the movie. I said, why? And they said, well, uh, we are aware of your book, and we'd like you to comment on the historical accuracy of the movie. And then possibly, if you're interested, write an article about uh, the historical accuracy of the movie. So I went with my wife. We sat in a movie theater that was completely empty, except for the two of us, two security guards, and a public relations person from the studio. Watched the movie. I enjoyed the movie. There were a number of uh, things that were done very well and were historically accurate. There were a number of things that were not historically accurate, and afterwards I declined to write an op-ed about the movie, but I offered to write just an essay for the studio, which I did. They liked the essay, and they asked me to shorten it, and they ended up putting that essay as a forward to the screenplay, which was sent to all members of the Writers Guild of America for consideration for Best Screenplay Award. Unfortunately, it didn't win. I don't think that's because of my forward to the screenplay. <laughs> And then I thought my brush with Hollywood was over, but then in the beginning of January, an online magazine named Quartz wrote an extensive article on the truth behind The Revenant, and they had found my book. Uh, They didn't call me, but they quoted from it extensively, and it was really fun reading it. And then a couple of weeks later, Time Magazine called 
and asked if they could interview me about the truth about the Revenant from an historical perspective. I said, sure. I got interviewed. The reporter liked my answer, so she called up two days later and said, hey, can we send a movie crew out to your house to film you answering the same questions? I said, sure. And that was a real experience. Uh, they sent two videographers out with two separate cameras. They spent almost two hours setting up in my small home office and then asked me a bunch of questions. And that became this video that was uh, attached to the article about the truth behind the Revenant. So I think that my brush with Hollywood is over. My mother was very frustrated when she watched the Oscars, however, and saw Leonardo DiCaprio accept the award. She asked why he didn't mention me. <laughs> so I had to tell my mother, who's very proud of her son, that uh, I don't even register on uh, Leo's page. He hasn't called me yet, but it was a lot of fun uh, going through this process. Well, I'm glad to see you have more than one blue sweater. Yes. you got a different sweater on today. So it's, yes. <laughs> I've got a lot of sweaters. <laughs> um, so when does the Revenant take place, and what was the larger context that was happening at that time in history? Well, Revenant is in around September of 1823, and this is at a time where already for about a decade, Americans had been pushing westward up the Missouri all the way to the Rocky Mountains and ultimately in later years beyond in pursuit of beaver, which were an increasingly diminished resource on the East Coast, so they had to go west to find more beaver and more pelts to sell. So in 1823, Hugh Glass was part of a band of trappers that had gone up the Missouri and then up the Yellowstone River. They were in search of beaver, and uh, Hugh Glass, during this expedition, was out hunting for food for the men, and he got too close to two grizzly cubs wasn't aware that there was a mother in the vicinity, and she charged him. And before he could, as he put it, set his triggers, which is basically get the gun ready to shoot, the bear was upon him, and he was severely mauled. And his fellow trappers came and rescued him by shooting the bear and the cubs. And that thus began the epic journey uh, that has come down to us as uh, part legend, part truth about mountain man Hugh Glass. So help us separate the fiction from the facts there. Well, I don't want to spoil the movie for people, but the, one of the problems in telling, in having a movie based on an, an historical event, especially when that historical event doesn't have a lot of documentation, is figuring out what the narrative arc of your movie would be. For the Hugh Glass story, he never wrote down his own story. Some of the contemporaries wrote down what had happened, and over the years it grew into a Western and then an American legend uh, that perhaps had some embellishments, but at its root, it's a very short story. But there are a couple of major elements that the uh, director added and the scriptwriters added to make it a more dramatic uh, movie. Uh, one of the biggest ones had to do with whether or not he was married. The origins of Hugh Glass are, are sort of misty, to say the least. Uh, they don't know much about where he grew up. It is said that he was a pirate in the Gulf of Mexico with John Lafitte. He also, about a year or two before the Revenant event took place, he had been uh, essentially adopted by a Pawnee tribe down near the Gulf Coast. He, however, did not marry an Indian woman. He certainly did not have an Indian 
son that was 15 or 16 years old, as is portrayed in the movie, come with him on this trip, and he was ultimately killed. So that's a major dramatic element that was added that wasn't in the original story. Uh, another thing that wasn't really true to the story had to do with the physical setting of the movie. This event took place in the end of September of 1823 in northern South Dakota. At that time of the year, the temperature during the day will often be in the 50s, can even go higher than 60, and it may go down to freezing at night. So he was left by these men. Uh, they told the others that he was dead, but he wasn't dead. He hung around there for about 10 days, eating berries and drinking water from a local stream, and then he managed to slog his way over a couple of hundred uh, miles wow. of territory to get back to Fort Kiowa. But he would have been doing this in the end of September, October, maybe into November, and there weren't three- and four-foot snowdrifts, as the movie would have you believe. It wasn't bitterly freezing. And, in fact, I'm not a doctor, but my opinion would be is that a man in his shape, after being severely mauled by a grizzly bear, uh, he would not have been able to travel hundreds of miles through deep snowdrifts in bitterly cold temperatures. So that was another element that was in the movie that isn't in the story as far as we know. But that being said, this is what I said to the studio. I greatly enjoyed the movie. It said it was inspired by true events. It didn't say it was based completely right. on true events. And I'm always of the belief that if you want to understand history, you shouldn't rely solely on movies or even documentaries to tell you what happened because history is very complicated, has a lot of interconnections, and a good article or a book on the subject will get you much further along towards the truth than even the best of movies and documentaries. Yes, although telling the story well, as you do in all your books, makes, makes a big difference in people's understanding of history. And, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, um, you know, the, the, the underlying story arc of these, you know, of these mountain men. Um, uh, I was going to, I guess, um, yes, we've only got a few minutes. So, Liz, you were going to ask about the mountain men. Yeah, so in your book, you talk about the mountain men the people from the yep. East would go out West and like Hugh Glass was one of them. What were some of the qualities that you, that they kind of had? Like how did they, where did they come from? Well, mountain men came from all different areas on the East coast. Uh, there's no one single stereotype, but there are certain characteristics that would make for a successful uh, mountain men. A lot of them were not well educated, but you have to bear in mind that at this time in the evolution of the United States, Many people, or most people, were not very well educated. But to be a good mountain man and go out and spend a year, many years in the wilderness, essentially on your own, except for the summer rendezvous when you would meet up with other mountain men and company men and sell your pelts, or the occasional times when you would travel with other mountain men, you had to be really independent. You had to be a certain part brave to brave the elements. You had to be very uh, ingenious in dealing with nature and wilderness just to survive. You had to know how to survive out in the wilderness because nature uh, was very unforgiving. And if you were a greenfoot, as they say, and went out there without anybody to help you, there might be a very steep learning curve. And, in fact, it might be so steep that you might die before you reach the top of it. 
So they were what we would call rugged individualists. Uh, some of them uh, wanted to escape civilization. They sort of were not that enamored with their fellow human beings and liked the idea of being out in the wilderness essentially alone. Uh, there were a few mountain men that were escaping gambling debts or the law. A good place to get away from the long reach of the law was to go all the way out west where there was no law enforcement uh, to speak of. And uh, they had to be uh, willing to live in an environment that was not only dangerous because of the animals that were there, the grizzly bears, a buffalo could charge, a mountain lion could attack them, but they were also in a part of the country that was not settled yet and was inhabited by a very large number of Native Americans who were none too happy usually about these Europeans and Americans coming west and the Canadians coming south into their territory. But I will have to add that a lot of mountain men who were not married, many mountain men weren't married before they left, some were, but a lot of mountain men actually got along fairly well with the Native Americans, both out of necessity and out of mutual admiration. And a lot of mountain men married Native American women. And these so-called country marriages often lasted a long time and produced offspring. Uh, another thing that the mountain men did sort of after the era dissolved is they became guides to many of the settlers who later would go over the Oregon Trail all the way out to the West Coast. So not only did the mountain men, not only were they among the first Americans or non-Native Americans of any type to go out West and send back reports about what was to be found out there, what were the best routes, what were the resources that might be available, uh, but they were also the ones who later on, as the beaver trapping started to die out, some of them transitioned to, in fact, encourage and help settlement, and some of them became settlers themselves of some note out west. So it's a fascinating time. And I wanted to add one thing about The Revenant. The one thing that I really like about the movie is the fact that it portrays the era of the mountain man, and a lot of it, it does very well. Uh, the keel boats in the river the way that they were trapping beaver. They didn't really show trapping beaver, but they showed people skinning beaver, uh, the sort of gritty, individualistic tendencies of mountain men were shown very well. Their relationships with uh, the Native Americans were shown to some extent. Their rela the relationship not only between the Americans and the Native Americans, but also the French trappers who were also in this area and the Native Americans, and that was another fascinating piece of the story. So I'm really appreciative of the fact that this movie brings to light in a small way, but a significant way, significant. an era, yeah, wow. an era in American history that a lot of people don't know much about. Because you don't see a lot of movies that are based on this time period really much at all. No, not at all. There was one other that came out. I think it was in the seventies. Jeremiah Johnson with Robert Redford in it. Right. That was pretty good. But other than that, I'm not. Well, Saga Joina married a mountain man, so her story with Lewis right. and Clark would be right. uh, that kind of story. Yeah, Lewis and Clark were sort of, when we got to Louisiana Purchase afterwards, you know, Thomas Jefferson wanted to send out Lewis and Clark for many reasons, but a lot of people forget that one of the main reasons that Jefferson was so keen on getting somebody out west was to see what the opportunities for expanding the fur trade were out west, and ultimately to get them all the way to the west coast so we could develop stronger ties with Asia and China in particular, which had become a very important trading partner because they really wanted the sea otter pelts 
that Americans were gathering in the Pacific Northwest, and the Americans wanted to sell them because the prime sea otter pelt at the time could sell for almost $100 in the early 1800s. And this is an era when the average laborer might have only made $1 or $2 a day. So when we're talking about the opportunity to make a lot of money and at the same time expand the scope of the nation, Jefferson signed on and he sent Lewis and Clark out west. And they only got there because of the mountain men right. and you know, Antoine Soulard and, and yep. Lewis and these local people who had been written it into the backwoods there and stuff. Absolutely. Native, uh, native knowledge. I don't mean Native American knowledge. Right. That was part of it. But these are Indigenous the people... knowledge, local yeah, knowledge. Local yeah. knowledge certainly helped uh, Lewis and Clark succeed. They couldn't have done it on their own. No, they couldn't have. Um, we're going to... Um, I, I want to thank you for stopping by. Um, what, um, and um, this is really, really cool what you did and stuff. And, and I had... When your book first came out... Um, I had the opportunity to read the whole book, and we talked about the book. And so yeah. after this break, um, we're going to roll the tape of you and I talking earlier. And I, I recommend it to everybody because Eric talks about his career path of starting with ocean conservation and coming around to where you are today. And, and so that's really great. But thank you for coming by. And, um, sure. Thank you. I, I have to do this. I didn't clear this with you before, but I'm going to make a pitch. I've, oh, got, yes. I've got a new book coming out in a month and a half called Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse. And it was one of uh, books that I had the most fun writing. And whether your interest is American history, lighthouses, maritime history, I think you'll enjoy it. It was a lot of fun writing and uh, your timing is yeah. perfect because it's yeah. the anniversary of Boston Light. Right, it's the 300th anniversary. The oldest Boston lighthouse Light. in North America, yes. or in America or something. Yep. And, uh, that is super. Uh, and if people want to uh, communicate with you or buy your books, what's your website? Uh, it's just my name. It's www.ericjdolan. That's E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N.com. And you can contact me through the website, and also find out more about uh, these two books and other ones as yeah, well. Yeah, you can hit on the book, and it's got a little video there about each book and stuff. Yeah. It's really a good website. Thanks. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot, and um, we'll be right back after this break. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. All together, all together. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hey, I'm back with Eric J. Dolan, and Eric's the author of Fur, Fortune, and Empire, where he tells the story of the fur traders and especially the mountain men, uh, and particularly there's mention of uh, Hugh Glass, who is the mountain man and the revenant. Um, And we were thinking of going to an earlier broadcast, uh, but that doesn't seem to go through. So fortunately, Eric has graciously agreed to stick. We've kidnapped him here, or we've locked the doors and, and uh, prevented him from running out screaming. Um, and um, so we get a little more time to talk about. Uh, was there aspects of the movie that you'd like to talk a little bit on before we move to change the subject? Or? I don't know. Well, one of the things that people talk about a lot, and I really like, were the special effects when the grizzly bear attacks Hugh Glass. That was just amazing. It, it looked very realistic. Uh, my wife, who was watching the movie at the time, covered her face. She felt it was a little too graphic. My guess is, though, if a real grizzly bear attacked you, maybe it'd be quicker, more, even more vicious than that. But I understand that they, what they did is they had him attached to ropes or wires, and they had people on either side pulling him violently back and forth and then up and down, and then somehow those masters of computer digital imagery were able to overlay a very realistic-looking mother grizzly bear that was really impressive. And, and as somebody who's watched Leonardo DiCaprio for many years and seen that he's been nominated a number of times, I'm glad that he finally got his, his Oscar. So Absolutely. He really had to suffer for that one, though. <laughs> <I suffered. laughs> yeah, but the other, thing that I, the other thing that I sort of was thinking about 
in this little brush I had with Hollywood, I know a couple of writers who have had their books turned into movies. And all I can say is that it's a whole different world from publishing. It's very exciting. I'd love to write a book someday that is uh, worthy of being made into a movie. I've had a couple that have been documentaries, but uh, I think it'd be really cool just to see how the process works. But it seems to work at light speed and and uh, very dramatic and exciting. And just the thought that something that you worked on might be seen by millions and millions of people in a short amount of time is really uh, is really cool. And yeah. It's nice that they have movies, as I mentioned before. It's nice that they depict this era in American history, there are a lot of other great stories in American history that I think people would want to learn more about, and maybe uh, when Hollywood gets interested, everybody seems to get interested, so I'm all for Hollywood taking historical events and making good movies out of them, even if they're not 100% accurate, because you're not going to the movie theater to get necessarily an education, you're going to have a, a visual mental, you know, fun experience. When you get in the big picture, you know, what those mountain yeah. men had to go through comes through, as you said, very oh, yeah. clearly. Yeah. And, and the, the finer details are, are the reason to go back to history books. So right. while I was rereading your account in Fur, Fortune, and Empire, I was shocked to read that the mother bear took a hunk of his flesh mm. and turned to feed it to the cubs right. and then turned around and started batting him about again or whatever. Yeah. And... and um, just that kind of detail. And then the other element was that um, you know, grizzlies are huge, big bears, and the idea of him just shooting off his rifle and the bear falling down just doesn't ring true to me. Right. And so I was glad to read in your book about how that, you know, Henry had his troops, you know, right. fire a volley of muskets or whatever guns were back right. then, you know, into that because, you know, grizzlies do not go down easy. And, Right. Yeah, actually, there's a, there's a couple of passages in the journals of Lewis and Clark about that where there's a charging grizzly and they put four, five, six balls into him and he's still coming on. They're massive animals, and you're right, it takes an awful lot unless you're very lucky and get hit just the right spot to, to take them down. Because uh, you got an angry mother. This is an yeah. angry mother bear, you know, yeah. they don't die easy. Cause <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and there was another element of the movie we were talking about earlier. I forgot what it was. But, um, no, it's just, it's really great the way they, um, you know, capture the coldness. And, of course, they actually had to go to Patagonia, I guess, because it wasn't snowing in Montana where they were. So in order to get all those snow cranes. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know if this is 100% accurate. I just remember reading something that, yes, they were blaming, I guess, climate change because the snow where they were, I'm not sure it was in Montana, I think it was New Brunswick, Canada, was melting much quicker than they anticipated. In order to film some of the scenes, they had to find another area that was equivalent in snowpack. And I guess that's how they ended up down in Patagonia. So that's an interesting connection. Again, I, I did not hear Leonardo DiCaprio's acceptance speech, but somebody told me that in it he talked about climate change. That's so right. maybe there's a linkage there, not just from his personal activism, but also from the experience that the, the movie had in, in getting made. He also said that much of it, like, he kind of said that the theme of the movie is, like, very much man and, like, nature and our place right. in nature, and that's kind of how he connected it. That's, it, that, that's interesting. I don't, I don't want to say anything that, that goes against Leo, because he's a big guy, but uh, 
it's funny. Yes, the movie is about man and nature, but if you dig down a little bit deeper, what it is really about is man trying to conquer nature and use nature. And it's a story that's as old as time. I mean, the fur trade is not the first or the last natural resource-based industry, which essentially, uh, you know, killed the golden goose through a combination of, of greed and avarice. They just, uh, you know, there, there were a lot of beavers. Some people estimate there may have been as many as 20 million beavers maybe in North American continent. But by the time the fur trade got through in the mid to late 1800s, there were very, very few. And in many areas, they've been totally extirpated. Same with the buffalo. I mean, there's no better example in the world than the buffalo, which is another element of the fur trade because of the buffalo robes. But at one time, there was an estimate maybe 60 million buffalo. By the 1890s, there were only about 1,900 in all of North America. Just think about the level of slaughter that would have had to have taken place year after year to uh, cause such a uh, destruction of a massive population. And yeah, that buffalo run where they run them off a cliff. Right. You know, the whole, yeah, whole well, the Native Americans used to do that. Uh, and fur trappers, I'm not sure there aren't too many uh, records of them doing that too often, uh, but uh, Native Americans would. And, yeah, I was, out, I was out west, and I went to a place that was a very famous buffalo jump, and just trying to imagine what it must have been like, these enormous two-ton or one-ton animals going off into space and then falling a hundred feet or more. Mm. Uh, it must have been a horrible noise. And uh, it's a, it's a particularly cruel way. Not that there's any nice way to kill an animal and strip it of its fur, but it seems to be one of the crueler ways, certainly a very efficient way of killing a large number of buffalo. Yeah, but that's the thing, is it's overkill, you know, that you right. shouldn't have to take 100% of a herd, you should be right. able to get by on 10% of the herd or something, yeah. and, uh, you know, like sustainable fishing or something. <laughs> yeah, sustainable fishing, <laughs> fishing is a perfect example, we're dealing with it now. Um, there used to be enormous fish stocks, and many of the most popular fish are in really bad shape, and, there, you know, you can blame environmental conditions to a certain extent, but... Fishing pressure is a major culprit. Human beings in general, my observation after years of writing all this history about natural resources is that human beings do not have a good track record or don't seem to be particularly adept at managing things of all sorts for the long term, especially in instances where there's a profit motive that works in a different direction. But unfortunately, it's an old story, and it's a sad story, and I fear it's a story that will be repeated over and over again. Well, don't generalize too much because there's an important distinction between the fishermen and the fur trappers and the Mm -hmm. mountain men because the fur people really did wipe out the the beaver and the buffalo, as you were saying. But the the fishermen, um, but humanity has been destroying essential fish habitat to a greater degree than was the problem for the buffalo and the beaver. Right. Was the you know the loss of habitat, the total choking up of essential you know bottom fauna for you know with algae and, and uh, sedimentation. Uh, in fact, the um, the pilgrims in 1638 
you know, passed the first fisheries protection law because they saw, they felt there was a loss in cod and striped bass. who have only been there for 18 years. Um, and so they said you cannot fertilize your field with um, striped bass and cod. And it wasn't because they were overfishing the, those fish. It was because they were blocking up the rivers and they were changing the, the habitat so drastically, I think, was why they were worried about it. And they only worried about it because they remembered how England was all gone. And, and so that it could happen, the next generation, well, it's just sort of like the last generation, and never again did we think about it until the 1970s or something. In your book, you, you go on to talk about the seal as being um, something as well. Right. So I'll get to the field in a second. I think your, yeah, point, your point is, is, is very good. There is a distinction there, but not a complete distinction because one of the things that sort of destroyed beaver populations was colonization and stripping the forests and siltation Fair of the rivers and, and farming. So there are, there are parallels, but certainly with fishing, we've had a much greater impact on the environment that fish live within, and we've also had a great impact in direct killing of fish yes, for consumption. But the seals, yeah, talk about that in the book. That's a, a whole other book, and there have been books written about it. But the seals were destroyed in enormous numbers in the early 1800s. Again, China was the main market for fur seals. They were much cheaper than sea otter pelts, whereas a prime sea otter pelt could be $80, $100. A really good fur seal pelt would maybe get you 3 or $5 in Canton, China. Not as much, but they made up for the low price with volume. And there were years in the early 1800s where there were records of millions of seals being killed. And the numbers are probably even higher because they didn't keep very good records there. And what they did time and again is they'd go to one area, they'd destroy colonies, rookeries, there, and then they'd have to find another area, just like the whaling fleets did the same thing. And there were even calls back then in the early 1820s for more restraint. Uh, a, Thomas, a Commodore Waddell, I think his name was, a, or a, I can't remember his exact name, but he wrote an impassioned letter where he basically said, we as, as uh, seal hunters are destroying our own industry because we're indiscriminately taking adults and babies and mothers, and he argued very early, and someday I'm going to go back to this because it was an amazing thing he wrote. He basically argued for selective hunting in the 1820s. He said we should only be taking a certain amount of adult males, leave the females to breed, don't ruin the rookeries, and create a sustainable resource. That's what he was arguing for, but nobody listened to him. And within five or six years, they had destroyed almost all the seal populations uh, off the coast of Antarctica, where they were at the time, and the Shetland Islands. So it's, uh, yeah, that's another uh, amazing, amazing story. Seals are amazing animals. I, I've, I've seen them out on the water a number of times, but I'll always remember one time in particular. I was off uh, in Chatham right in front of the Coast Guard and Coast Guard Beach. And my son, Harry, who was, I think, three years old at the time, he didn't really want to go all the way in the water, and that's fine. And this is before all the scares about sharks uh, that have come up recently. So we walked in to about a foot of water, and literally, I'd say five feet from us, a huge head pops out of the water of a, uh, 
not a leopard seal, gray seal. And, uh, and Harry looks at it and his eyes are wide. I'm looking at it and I'm yeah. going, wow, that is an enormous animal. And it popped up a couple more times just as cruising along the, the shallows. And, uh, it just, it shocked me being so close to it. But then I quickly just became amazed. I, but we, we did back up. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want them to mistake my son's fingers for right. a, a little, uh, you know, a mummy chug or a chili fish or something like that. But, well, that's uh, interesting because the the more abundant uh, harbor seals are much smaller, and they look they have like a, a Labrador retriever head, you know, with a forehead, and they look much friendlier. Whereas the gray seal, we call them horse heads because they've got this long, loping horse head type thing, and so yeah. I would much rather go eye to eye with a harbor seal than a gray seal just because of the nature of the head and the size and stuff. Yeah. Um, but then again, it's good. Those are good instincts to back away from, from wildlife and not just say, "Oh, how cute! I'm going to go pet it." Yeah, because like the only time I've ever been exposed to a seal is like at the aquarium, aquarium. Yeah. where you go and like you watch them toss a fish to them or something, and they don't really seem that intimidating. But when you've seen them in nature or just in the wild, like they have a total, they have a total advantage over you. Like right. that's not your natural habitat at all. Right, right. And so one thing if you're in a boat on the shore, but if you're swimming and yeah. snorkeling or, or diving, you know, Incredible. it takes a little getting used to having such a, lot, a large beast. Now, I can't let this pass without, again, another segue to my new book, because I was on <laughs> Coast Guard Beach, and right behind it is the Chatham Lighthouse. And I want to say, and I'm not just saying this to get you interested in my book, I had so much fun writing this book I knew nothing about the topic before I started, which is usually the case with most of my books. But this book came about in a very strange way. I didn't have a topic for my next book. I just finished one. And all of a sudden, my editor, longtime editor, calls my agent and says, Eric, want to write a book on lighthouses? So my agent called me, and I said, I don't know. I don't really know much about them. So I went off for a month. I read a bunch about lighthouses, and I was caught. And I just was absolutely fascinated because... Just like all my other books, it's not so much a book about lighthouses, although it is. It's a book about American history that uses lighthouses as a narrative backbone. And the thing that amazed me the most is the book ended up having an entire chapter on the American Revolution. It has an entire chapter on uh, the Civil War. It's got a chapter on technology and a hardcore chapter on technology. It's got chapters on westward manifest destiny and sweeping west, uh, on rescues, heroic rescues. Uh, it just, every turn was a fascinating story, made more fascinating by the fact that I was unfamiliar with it, but also just inherently there's something magical, I think, about lighthouses, how they're, you know, starkly etched across the sky when you look up at them, and they're just amazing structures. But once you dig deeper than just the sheer beauty and having a calendar with lighthouses or a little lighthouse salt and pepper shaker, you realize that there were thousands of people who worked at those lighthouses and thousands of fascinating stories. And without lighthouses, the evolution of America would have been very, very different. They were critical to the growth of the nation because they helped secure the safety of maritime commerce, which to this day is still how we get most of our goods and services yeah. from overseas. Yeah. So, uh, crucial I for navigation. Just, just, I'm going to have to stop you for a yeah. second. So we're going to take a short break, and we're okay. going to come back and talk some more with Eric Dolan, Eric J. Dolan, and your website is www.ericjdolan.com, right? Yeah, right. And um, we'll be right back. Don't know, don't know, don't know, don't know. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate4oceans.org. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with Eric J. Dolan. Um, and with me is Liz Tabbitt. Hi, Liz. Hi, Rob. Uh, Liz is our um, student intern at the Ocean River Institute. Uh, Eric is coming out with a book titled Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the book because um, it's going to be the three, this year, or is it next, it's this year, it's the 300. September. Yeah, September 14th, I think it is. The 300th anniversary of the first lighting of Boston Lighthouse in 1716, uh, the first lighthouse of, in our country. Yeah. So it's a, it's a pretty major uh, anniversary, certainly worth 
celebrating, and especially given that since that time there have been well over a thousand lighthouses built in the United States. A lot of them aren't around right now, but there are still almost 700 lighthouses in the United States and along the coast, up in Alaska, Hawaii, all around the Great Lakes. So uh, yeah. if you live anywhere in the United States uh, near any of those bodies of water, bodies of water. Uh, you're within driving distance of some very dramatic uh, lighthouses, that, and each of them uh, has a great stories that go along with them. Well, I'm partial to the Boston Harbor Island, you know, little Brewster Island, Boston right. Light there, um, and also um, the Graves Lighthouse, uh, because I was uh, on the uh, first um, partnership of the Boston Harbor Island National Park, and involved with, um, you know, getting that uh, general management plan agreed to and up and running, and uh, uh, at one point, uh, George Price was the superintendent, and um, he he took me out to, uh, or he he went out to um, uh, he he went out to show this important federal person, Little Brewster Island Lighthouse, and and uh, he went into the um, into the lighthouse and said, "Look, here is the original foghorn equipment, and it wasn't there." And it turned out that Commander Beck, who was the Coast Guard commander on the partnership, and Coast Guard is totally a can-do people, they had taken upon themselves to clean it up a little bit. So <laughs> we almost had a historical, you know, clash of the Titans there, you know, about poor George's face just fell to the ground that he could, you know, but he was man enough to, you know, it's okay, you know. And uh, the Coast Guard was not too happy with uh, Senator Kennedy insisting that that little Brewster Island lighthouse had to stay manned by the Coast Guard people um, because they didn't think that was their job, really, to be wikis and, and doing historical talks and stuff. They have a lot of work to do with navigation and with rescue and so forth. Uh, and fortunately, the, the nature of having a partnership governing the national park was that the Coast Guard sat next to Massport, sat next to um, other members of the, of the management, and uh, they were able to have communications across those agencies and um, break down the silos. And so they, they learned that Massport had a um, a floating dock that they could borrow and bring up to the, the rocky coast of Little Brewster so that they could land people from off of boats. Um, and then there was there is the Boston Harbor Islands, friends of Boston Harbor Islands, who would love to be historians. And so by bringing the three together, we were able to open up the harbor, the Blue Brewster to be visited, and that became like the first accomplishment that this park was working together. So it became kind of to the lighthouse experience of getting it going. Yeah, that's um, a great story. And then um, you were telling us this wonderful story of, of the situation out at uh, Graves Light. And okay. I, was, I was sailing out there the other day, and it was the day that the uh, uh, Lafayette ship, the Hermione, came to Boston Harbor hmm. and um, for reproduction of it. They sailed over from France. And, uh, uh, and uh, I was sailing out that day past uh, the uh, Graves Light and they had a huge French flag flying off the <laughs> Graves Light. You know, I got a picture yeah. of it sent to the superintendent. He hadn't seen it and stuff. But this is a reflection on the people who, who are living there now or on the press about them. 
So one of the things that happened is, as you mentioned, the Coast Guard has other mission priorities, not maintaining lighthouses. And over time, there were a number of uh, government efforts to allow the Coast Guard to keep those lighthouses that were still needed for navigation flashing and their foghorns blaring, but getting the Coast Guard out of the building management business. So essentially, there was a mechanism for transferring lighthouses to nonprofit organizations or government organizations to maintain, operate and maintain the lighthouses as museums and otherwise. And if they still needed to have the light operated, Coast Guard would come, up, come by every once in a while and maintain that. But some lighthouses, uh, there were no takers on the nonprofit or government side. So there was a feature of this federal law that allowed those properties to be auctioned off to the highest bidder. And to date, there have been something, I think, approaching 40 lighthouses that have been bought by individuals. And the prices have ranged from as low as $10,000 to as high as nearly a million dollars. And that one that sold for around $990,000 was the Graves Lighthouse to uh, the Wallers, a husband and wife and a family. They live outside of Boston, great people. Uh, they have fixed it up. They've sunk a lot of money into it, really did their homework. They have a beautiful website that talks about the history of the site and what they've done, and they have planned someday to open it up perhaps to students that want to do biological explorations or studies, uh, maybe renting it out for special occasions for people to stay there. I know that they've auctioned off a weekend stay to help support one of the Waller's children's schools, and they raised, I think, $8,500 for a single weekend stay at this uh, beautiful sentinel there out in the middle of the water outside of the mouth of Boston Harbor. So they're really great people. They've done a great job with the lighthouse, and there are a lot of very interesting stories about people who have bought lighthouses. Some people live in them. Uh, some have been turned into bed and breakfast. Um, some are still being repaired. But before you rush out and buy a lighthouse, even one for ten or $20,000, keep in mind that's only the beginning of your expenses. It is very expensive to maintain a lighthouse. When you buy one of these, you have to sign certain documents that say that you will preserve the historic character of the lighthouse, and you can't just let it fall apart because the whole purpose behind this program was to get these lighthouses into the hands of those who had the resources and the desire to take care of them for future generations. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a great story. I, I have not been out to that lighthouse yet, uh, but I was recently to the Marblehead Lighthouse, which is where I live. I live in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and it was a magazine that wanted to do an article about my book, so they wanted to take pictures out there, and a funny coincidence took place. I've lived in Marblehead for 10 or 11 years. I've never been into the lighthouse. It's a skeleton tower lighthouse, and it's owned and maintained by the town of Marblehead, but the, uh, the navigation guys and women at the Coast Guard still come by periodically to maintain the light. And this guy, photographer, was taking pictures of me with the, the lighthouse in the background, and all of a sudden... He goes, hey, there's somebody up there. And I looked over my shoulder, and there were two guys 
climbing around the outside gallery of there's a there's a iron uh, you know railing. railing and they were climbing at the top of the lighthouse about you know almost 100 feet tall and I said I bet those are coast guard guys coming to maintain it so we wa- I said let's see if we can get in there so we walk over there and the guy sees us walking towards the lighthouse and getting closer to the open door and he yells down you can't come up here and I said I know I know I told him what we were doing. I said, it'd be great if we could just come up and take a couple of pictures. And these uh, two young Coast Guard guys were very nice. And they said, come on up. So we went up there, and in the little small lantern room, we took a bunch of pictures, talked to the Coast Guard guys, and went down. And that's the first and only time I've been up in my hometown's lighthouse. And I have to tell you, I'm getting older there were a lot of steps, and it's a very narrow cylinder. It's a spiral staircase, but these skeleton towers have a very narrow cylinder, so you're really twisting a lot as you go up on this iron staircase. And by the time I got to the top, I was breathing pretty hard, and uh, going down was easier. Yeah. But that, that was a lot of fun. I, and, again, I didn't know much about lighthouses before I started writing this book, and uh, you know, perhaps I shouldn't admit this, but before I started writing the book, I had never been to a lighthouse in my life other than seeing them on the beach or in the distance. So right after I signed the contract for this book, I contacted uh, a guy named Jeremy DeEntremont, who's up in New Hampshire. He runs lighthouse tours. Out of, he has a van, and he'll take you to four or five lighthouses on a day, pay a certain amount. And that was my first introduction. He was a great teacher. He actually ended up being one of the reviewers of the early manuscript. He's a really nice guy, very knowledgeable about lighthouses, and has written a bunch of books about them. But that was fun. It it introduced me to this whole subculture. I mean, a lot of people say everybody loves lighthouses. I'm not sure everybody loves lighthouses, but i got to tell you, a lot of people love lighthouses. There's a reason why there's so many lighthouse calendars. There's just something about it that captures the imagination, whether it's remembering or thinking about the historic maritime past or just their inherent beauty, and they have a big leg up on other uh, other landmarks. They're almost invariably located in scenic areas, beautiful beaches, promontories. Spectacular, yeah. yeah. I mean, if they had to do it over again, given real estate prices along the coast, they're going to wrap up. Yeah. They, they, they might, you know, maybe they've moved them to other places, but lighthouses, if you go around the country, they are located in some of the most gorgeous spots on the coast. That's that you can imagine. That's terrific. Uh, Eric Dolan, Eric J. Dolan, thank you for coming in and talking to us about uh, Fur and the, the uh, Revenant and, and all these different books you're coming out with and stuff. Sure. Uh, Liz, uh, we didn't yes. talk much on this episode, but uh, you'll be back on the next one. Um, if you want to uh, hear our other conversations with Eric on his other books, please go to www.oceanriver.org and hit pod, or hit search and put in uh, Dolan, D-O-L-I-N, right. and you'll come up with the other uh, podcast. Uh, but that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Until next time, please stay safe and keep trying to save the oceans and save the rivers drop by drop and fish by fish. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Rob